Hello, and welcome to the Laverne Church of Christ podcast, and thank you for joining us. You can find us at 244 Old Nashville Highway, Laverne, Tennessee, 37086. We hope that any time you are in the area, you will stop by and join us for worship. Our Sunday morning worship is at 9 a.m., with Bible classes following. Our Sunday evening worship is at 6 p.m., and we also have a Bible study on Wednesday at 7 p.m. Today, I'll be reading Revelations chapter, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Then the revelation of Jesus Christ, which gave him to show his servants things that must so shortly take place, and he sent a significant and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who who blessed is he who reads and those who hear the word of the prophe- prophecy and keeps those things which are written in it, for the, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace, f- peace from, hi- from him who is and who was and who, w- who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who, who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn, and the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved, who loved us and washed us from, from, from our sins in the in his own blood, and and has made us kings, and priests in in his God and Father. To him be glorified and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds, with clouds, and every eye will see him. Every, even they who, who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is, and who is to come, the Almighty. I read Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Hi. <laughs> Good evening, church. It's so great to see you all here tonight. And I can't even tell you how excited I am to start our journey through the book of Revelation. I've been waiting a long time to preach through uh, Revelation again. And uh, I certainly hope that this will be a blessing to you. I want to urge you to make the study of Revelation this year a special project for yourself. And certainly, week after week, as we go through this text with the exception of the summer series, and again, I don't know how long it'll take to preach through the book. I really have no idea. Uh, I don't have it planned out in that way because it's just not possible for me to estimate that. But all through the year, of course, the, the pulpit on Sunday nights is going to be supporting your study of the book of Revelation. So to get the best and the most out of it, make it a project that all year long you'll just continually delve into Revelation, in addition to your daily studies and things, but just an extra few minutes a day. To, to take a couple of uh, verses or another chapter or two of the book of Revelation and keep reading through it because the more that, that the text of the book is in your mind, the, the better this lesson series is going to stick with you, 
the, the more perfectly you're going to learn the messages of this book and be able to, well, to do what the book says that you ought to be able to do, and that is to understand them, to obey the teachings, and be blessed by them. Amen. All right? And so I want to read uh, just a little introductory note that I put together uh, before we delve into the rest of the presentation. The late 1st century to the early 4th century A.D., was a very tumultuous time for the church. The Jewish connection had been severed. In other words, Christianity was no longer seen as a subset of Judaism. Christianity as such did not enjoy legal or favored status in the Roman Empire. It had, uh, there was limited persecution of Christians that had already taken place under Nero in the mid-60s AD. But the cult of the emperor or emperor worship became mandatory in parts of the empire, especially uh, the Roman province of Asia, which is modern-day Turkey, near the end of the first century A.D. And the concept of emperor worship grew as the empire spread eastward. And though in some form or another it had dated to as far back as Augustus, until Caligula, none of the emperors had taken it seriously. But Domitian named himself Master and God. And later emperors took it more or less seriously than Domitian had, and several persecuted the church to the death with the worst persecutions coming under the reign of Diocletian. That great persecution lasted from 303 to 313 A.D., just before the end of this period. This long period of persecution is the initial occasion. I want you to pay close attention to these words. Maybe go back and listen to the audio or watch the video of the sermon again and listen to this. But this long period of persecution is the initial occasion for the inspiration of the revelation to John. And the four centuries of this off and on persecution of Christians was the primary or first fulfillment of the soon and shortly to come to pass statements in Revelation 1 and 22 as contrasted with the seal up the prophecy language of Daniel 12.4 which prophecy began to be fulfilled only after a period of about four centuries had passed. The book of Revelation was written after the destruction of Jerusalem to console suffering disciples and strengthen their endurance, and it was written sometime between the mid-70s A.D. to the late 90s. All the best and most ancient witnesses to its authorship attributed to the Apostle John. And the specific language to the seven churches best fits the time of the end of the first and early second centuries. So there's uh, facts for nerds. Facts for Bible nerds to get us started. All right? Now, the book of Revelation is um, a matter of interest to an awful lot of people. A lot of people are very interested in this book. It has certainly sparked creative imaginations throughout the history of the Christian era. You can find all kinds of fascinating artwork online uh, that, that is inspired by different of the images and scenes that you find in the book of Revelation. Some really, really interesting symbols that are characteristic of apocalyptic literature that are really fascinating, vivid pictures, symbolic pictures that stand for uh, the realities of what's going on in, in unseen by mortal eye in the rule of Jesus over this present heavens and earth. The book has also unfortunately been abused and misused by more false teachers than can easily be counted. And as a result, there is a great deal of misunderstanding about the book of Revelation and lots of outright false teaching that I think is designed as much as anything to put money in people's pockets. Sadly, people will pay money 
for certain types of teachers of the book of Revelation that will interpret everything in the news and attach it to one of the symbols in this book. And I believe that that is a misunderstanding and a misuse of the book of Revelation. Of course, as Lord willing, as we go through this series together on Sunday nights, we will definitely explore some of these er uh, errors and the problems with that and hopefully continue to, continue to highlight the proper, I believe, and correct interpretation of this wonderful book. Now, this may be difficult to see. I thought it would show up a little better than that. I hope that some of y'all that have good eyes can see that. Um, if not, let me know. I will always send any of you that would like my PowerPoint presentation, which you can use in your studies however you want. However, let me remind you, I know Sister Gail asked me for a presentation that I don't even remember which one it was. So if you do ask me for a presentation, write it down and hand me that on a piece of paper and that way I'll actually get it to you because by the time I hit the vehicle in the parking lot, I promise I have forgotten. All right, it's just sorry. I'm the absent-minded professor. It's the way it is. All right, one of the things I wanted to do is I wanted to show you on the left side of your screen the Revelation Chiasmus. And those of you that haven't heard of, of chiastic structures before, a chiasmus is a poetic construction of words. It is a literary way of organizing text. It's poetry. And it is one of the great characteristics of Hebrew poetry. Now, poetry is artistic use of language. And, you know, in English, we most readily think of rhyme because rhyme is the most recognizable element of much of English poetry. But rhyme is not the only thing that makes poetry poetry. There's also meter, which means that there's a certain uh, sort of rhythm that poetry should be read to. And if it's written well, you will almost naturally fall into a certain cadence of reading the text. And it's supposed to be that way. And you definitely, if you look at some of the Jews at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, the way that they're reading their scriptures, you will see the rhythm and the cadence of Hebrew poetry in the way that they rock to the syllables that they're reading. And so Hebrew poetry is consistent of parallelism. Not so much rhyme, although there is wordplay and words that sound like other words and lots of fascinating stuff like that in both Hebrew and Greek. But the characteristic is parallelism, laying one thought aside another and, and so on and so forth. And in my opinion, the most ingenious forms of Hebrew parallelism are the chiastic structures. And, and for those of you that have, uh, that have heard before and those maybe hearing for the first time, it comes from the Greek letter chi, C-H-I, which is, looks like an English letter X. And so there's where the chiastic structure comes from because you can see it's making sort of an X pattern in the literature. And one of the ingenious uh, purposes of chiastic literature is it is using parallelism to draw us to a central most important point, right? And so if you see the whole of the book of Revelation, is constructed chiastically. And there is a central point to the book of Revelation. If you can see the text on the screen, I just want you to see there's the prologue, chapter 1, 1 through 20. I won't read all of the text in parentheses. Then there are the seven epistles, little letters to the seven churches. Then the se And those parallel the seven angels um, that the book practically ends with then in 17 through 22. And then there are the seven seals, chapter 4 and on, that parallel the seven bowls, chapter 15 and on. There are the, the 144,000 saints in the seven trumpets, uh, chapter 7 and forward, that parallel the 144,000 saints and seven angels, chapters 14 and forward. There, is, there are the two witnesses, chapter 11, paralleled with the two beasts, chapter 13. The woman clothed with the sun, uh, chapter 12, parallels the woman's uh, seed, 
uh, keeping the commandments of God, chapter 12. There is the woman fleeing to the wilderness, early chapter 12, paralleling the woman fleeing to the wilderness in late chapter 12. And right smack dab in the middle, you see it there, Satan cast out. Satan cast out. Satan cast out. Do you see then what the poetry in Revelation is ultimately pointing to, no matter how you understand the text. It is ultimately pointing to the fact that Satan has already been defeated. So whatever being a Christian may call you to sacrifice, no matter what kind of suffering following Jesus may bring into your life, it is of paramount importance that you never allow the devil to deceive you into thinking that following Jesus is not still your best path. Brothers and sisters, following Jesus is your only path. It is the only path that can possibly succeed. It is the only path that leads to life. Every other path leads to death and ruin and eternal spiritual poverty and suffering. And I'm not... I'm not in any way exaggerating a bit. So if following Jesus leads you to the fiery furnace, walk into the furnace. If following Jesus leaves you eyeball to eyeball with the persecutor's gun, walk eyeball to eyeball to the persecutor's gun. If following Jesus means you lose your head to some wicked Muslim terrorist, then lose your head for Jesus. Because Satan has already been cast out. And all he's trying to do is to make it more painful for you in the process to get to heaven. Get to heaven anyway. And there's the message of Revelation in a nutshell. Nutshell, the invitation is yours. (laughs) All right? So that's the idea. But you see there the power of this chiastic structure. And if you understand it, And if you recognize the Hebrew basis of all the scriptures, you will start to recognize this construction in lots and lots of passages. Now, I want to tell you that the overall chiastic structure of the book of Revelation is not the only chiastic structure that we will reveal as we go through the text. I'm telling you the book of Revelation is the prophecy of all prophecies. It is the fulfillment, the filling up of the whole genre of apocalyptic prophecy that we have so many beautiful examples of in the Old Testament. But everything that Ezekiel is and Daniel is and Zechariah is and all the portions of the other Old Testament books that are at least in part apocalyptic, all they're doing is setting you up to be able to read. Ah, that's an overstatement. But, but the main thing they do for us is set you up to learn how to read the book of Revelation, which is the best of the best. This is the greatest work of prophecy that God ever inspired. And that's why it's the capstone of the Bible and the last book of the New Testament, the last book of the Bible ever written. And I won't tell you it's the most important book of the Bible, but it is absolutely the pinnacle work of prophecy that was ever done. And its construction, brothers and sisters, is amazing beyond, I'm telling you, beyond what, forget what the average person, its construction is amazing beyond what the above average person even understands. John with the Holy Spirit's inspiration, layered structure upon structure. Chiasm within chiasm. Parallel to parallel. The the construction of this book is just rich, and it's awesome, and it's deep. I don't, don't know 
how well a job I'm going to do over this year in exposing all of that to you, but God is my witness and I'm sure going to try. The outline of the book, I like Hendrickson's outline from his commentary, More Than Conquerors. He recognizes a sevenfold construction of the book. Uh, you can see there top right for as well as you can see that writing. Christ in the midst of the lampstands, the vision of the heaven and the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the persecuting dragon, the seven bowls, the fall of Babylon, and the great consummation. And we will definitely follow that structure as we uh, chart our course through the book. Bottom right of the screen there, the heading is concerning numbers. I just want to say a few things about Jewish numerology. That is the symbolic meaning of numbers in the biblical text. And this is rooted in the Jewish worldview of things, but it's just become the biblical, uh, the biblical numerology, the biblical meaning of numbers. The numbers 1 and 3 consistently refer to deity or divinity because God is one and yet God is three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who together are one God. The number 4 very often refers to mankind or, well, to the earth that belongs to man. It corresponds to the uh, four cardinal directions, uh, north, south, east, and west, and many other things in our world that are fours as far as that thing goes. If you interpret that number of four by ten, I'll tell you something about ten in a minute, uh, you get the biblical generation number. And so four often refers to different aspects of human life. Um, three and a half has been called by at least one commentator a broken seven. It's half of a seven. And this broken seven are various forms of it. Oftentimes when you come to a number in apocalyptic literature and you're like, what on earth is the significance of this number? Use your math brain, divide it down, and figure out you will very often conclude that you can, you can uh, what's the math words for this? Um, through process of simplification, you can recognize all right, there it is, three and a half again, three and a half again, the broken seven. And if you know what seven means, then you can probably figure out what the broken seven means. The broken seven uh, is a cutoff or a partial thing or a partial period of time, something that was not allowed to come to perfection, all right? Then there's the number six, which always refers to failure or incompleteness. It is just almost making it to seven and falling short. And that's why six or the multiplication of six is the number for human wickedness and sin. So 666, we'll talk about that when we get to that passage. It's just like sin, sin, sin. All right, it is the ultimate falling short of God's perfect ideal. Well, that leads us to the number seven, which in Scripture is complete or Perfection. Notice that it's three plus four. God plus man equals seven equals perfect. Then we have the number 12, three times four. Again, a number that is often used for God's people, the 12 tribes, the 12 apostles, 144,000 being a multiplication of 12. And so 12 is the complete number of God's people. So when we, in a couple of weeks, get into chapter 4, and we see the vision of heaven, and there before the throne of God are the 24 elders. You have the 12 elders of ancient Israel rec representing the Old Testament faithful, and you have the 12 New Testament saints representing the New Testament faithful. And in that 24, those two 12s, you have the whole of God's people represented. And that's the significance of those numbers. Ten is, in a sense, complete, but in the sense that it's a multiplier. So if I take 144, 12 times 12, 
as a symbolic reference to the completeness of God's people. If I multiply that by multiples of 10, say to 144,000, it is a symbolic number for the whole multitude of God's people. All right? Now, I hope this makes sense because this is not difficult. It's not. It's just that most people don't know prophecy well enough to know what the numbers mean. And as you read the Bible, you will find these numbers consistently used in these same ways. In other words, reading the Bible is God's chosen uh, training method for teaching you how to read the book of Revelation. When I first started preaching about 25 years ago, um, I made a note to myself, note to self, that I was not going to teach or preach through the book of Revelation until I had taught or preached through everything else in the Bible. I didn't live up to that, of course. <laughs> but the, but my, my thought process was not entirely wrong. Now, what I did actually do over the course of this quarter century is I did spend a whole lot of time in the whole Bible and just reading Revelation every now and then, which over the course of years of study taught me how to read the book of Revelation. And then when I felt that I was qualified to do a serious study, then I, the first time I ever taught through the book, I broke off that chunk. And it was one of the most challenging but also fulfilling experiences of my ministry life so far. This will make about the third time, I think, that I have taught or preached through the book, and it just gets better every time. So I just want you to know, the key to interpreting Revelation is the Bible. If you read through the Bible, the Bible will teach you how to understand this kind of prophetic language. It does not take someone with some kind of theological degree from an advanced university to figure out how to read the book of Revelation. I'm not going to say it's not difficult. I'm not going to say it won't take serious work and, and study on your part because it will if you're going to understand it effectively. But it is written in such a way that anyone of an average intelligence who will put forth the effort can understand it. Uh, Ernest and I were talking about this very recently. You know that we've heard all of our lives people talking about the Bible and you'll hear folks saying rather flippantly, the Bible was written in the language of the common man. It was written so that everybody can understand it easily. Not true. Absolutely not true. The Bible was written in the language of the common man. But in no sense did God decide just to make this all easy. If you, if you say the Bible is all easy to understand, you, you're a novice. You're a novice. You haven't got into it yet. There's a lot of things in the Bible that are hard to understand. And even the Apostle Peter says those very words about the writing of the Apostle Paul. So unless you think you're superior to an apostle, you better go ahead and confess that there are parts of the Bible that are difficult. Here's the truth. God saw to it that the whole of the Scriptures was inspired in the language of the common man so that every man, woman, or child who will put the work in can come to understand it and understand it well. But studying the Bible is an aspect of spiritual discipline, and it takes discipline to understand it. And if you will not discipline yourself to study it diligently, do not become a teacher. Let not many of you become teachers, lest you incur upon yourselves a stricter judgment, the words of James himself. Doesn't mean he doesn't want us all to be teachers. It means he wants us to revere that responsibility to the point that we take the study that it takes to preach the word soundly, very, very seriously. Does that make sense? Now, that's the truth about studying the Bible. You can all understand it well if you'll work hard to do it. But if you won't, then you won't. <laughs> and that's all there is to it. All right? So, uh, I don't know how far I'm going to get in this lesson tonight, but I'm prepared to stop at 30 minutes wherever I am. So, 
be at peace, okay? Be at peace amongst yourselves. And let's dig in just a little bit. Revelation 1, 1 through 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. Now, Jesus is God, right? God being a man. But if we've got a context where Jesus is interacting with God, then we know Jesus is interacting with God the Father. Because God the Father is Jesus' is God. Jesus, as the Son of God, worships his Father. And as such, he is our example to do the same, right? And so Jesus is God, but his God, or God the Father, the first person of the Godhead, gave this revelation to Jesus. You see that? The book of Revelation originated in the mind of God the Father. And God the Father gave this knowledge to Jesus to show his servants the things that must soon take place. You must focus on that statement because in this series we will deal with this statement a number of times, Lord willing. He made it known. Who did? Jesus made it known. He made it known. Now, I've highlighted or bolded the made it known because as Tiger was reading the scripture reading, I think from the New King James Version, it says he signified it. He signified it. The ESV says made it known. All right? Uh, it comes from the Greek word semino, which means to give a sign or to signify or to indicate. The second definition is to make known. So the ESV saying to make known is correct, but the better word is to signify or to give a sign. And this gives us a clue as to the type of literature that the book of Revelation is because it is symbolic language. And so God the Father gave this vision, this revelation to Jesus, his son. Jesus made it known by signifying it, by giving these symbols that interpret or, or that represented all of the truth that God the Father had given. All right, so he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Now that's in the first century, the second century, the third century, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh, the eighth, the ninth, the tenth, the eleventh, twelfth, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, and now we're in the twenty-first century since Christ, right? It still means the same thing today that it meant then. If you will read aloud the words of this prophecy, and if you're on the hearing end of things, blessed are those who hear. The point of reading it or hearing it read is this, and who keep what is written in it, meaning the book of Revelation does, in fact, have positive teaching and commandments of God for the church in every dispense, every era of the Christian age to obey. And so even now in the 21st century, if we read or we hear the book of Revelation read, and we take to heart the message, and we put its teachings into practice in our lives, the promise here is that we will be blessed. Amen. And so the book of Revelation is a blessing to us here in the 21st century. And by the time we're through with this book, Lord willing, Christ hasn't come back first, and I hope he does. But if he doesn't, and we get all the way through this teaching series in the book of Revelation, you are going to be blessed by it. It is going to bless your life, and it's going to help you to understand what's going on in your world right now in the 21st century in a much greater way than you ever imagined it could. Now, I wanted to draw a contrast here uh, because the last part of this phrase is, again, the second time that John has said this, for the time is near. Now, the most direct parallel to the book of Revelation in the whole Bible is the book of Daniel. 
And, and so the book of Daniel, if you will study the book of Daniel and gain a degree of proficiency in it, if not mastery of it, that book alone will teach you how to interpret the book of Revelation. Now, you'll do even better if you gain a degree of proficiency in Ezekiel, which is one of the hardest books in the Bible, in my opinion. Isaiah, very difficult. All right? Get into Zechariah. Again, many of these apocalyptic texts in the Old Testament are difficult to interpret and understand. Not impossible. It takes work. It takes dedication. It takes prayer. Right? But Daniel in particular, at the end of his book, chapter 12, verse 4, God says to Daniel, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Now, someone that doesn't know their Bible well, that just comes across this passage and interprets this culturally, as many have done in Christendom, especially in the last several centuries. They see the phrase, until the time of the end, and they think, oh, that means the end of the world. Wait, did it say that? The time of the end of what? That's the question that a careful Bible student needs to ask. Does the text tell me the time of the end of what? Well, it does in a roundabout way. But what this means is the time of the end of the commonwealth of Israel. It means the time of the end of the nation of Israel as it was under the Old Testament system. The time of the end of the efficacy of the law of Moses. That's specifically what is meant. And so the fulfillment of the prophecies in the book of Daniel, almost all of them, came about 400, between 400 and 500 years after the time of Daniel's prophesying. And so a time of four or five hundred years, well, we know from uh, 2 Peter 3 that with the Lord a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. And if I've heard one Bible interpreter say that about interpreting apocalyptic literature in my life, I've heard a thousand say it, as if that somehow enables them to do whatever they want with numbers. It does not. 2 Peter 3 is telling us how God perceives things, not how we perceive things. A thousand years for me, brother, is not a day. It's a thousand years. <laughs> it's lots and lots of days. Now, I recognize from the perspective of our timeless God, He's not concerned about time the way that we are. But it doesn't mean that we're not supposed to be concerned about time, does it? Doesn't Paul say a little something in both Ephesians and Colossians about redeeming the time because the days are evil? Yeah, he does. So understand who's being talked to and what the purpose of a passage is before you loosely apply it to interpreting prophecy. So God, when he's speaking to humankind on our level and telling us the way things are for us, says four or five hundred years is a long time. He says, Daniel, I'm giving you prophecies that aren't going to be fulfilled for four or five hundred years. So seal it up. It's for the time of the end of, of God's dealings with the nation of Israel. So when we then see the same type of biblical literature, when we've got apocalyptic literature, which Daniel is, and then in the New Testament, we've got another example of apocalyptic literature, New Testament apocalypse, the same rules apply. And, and so if God had told Daniel, seal it up because it's many years from now, and that's four or five hundred years, then when God says to John, don't seal up the words of this prophecy, for the time is at hand, well then we can with authority say that at least the initial fulfillment of this prophecy took place within four or five hundred years. Does that make sense? If it does, then the first piece of understanding Revelation totally, correctly, and effectively has fallen into place. Compare it and contrast it with the other works of prophecy in Scripture, and it will bless you very much.
Verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. You see there on the screen a map. Hope you can see it well. There's Greece on the left. There's Turkey on the right in the modern-day world. Uh, although Turkey at this time was ethnically Greek, what we would call Greek, the identity of the Turks today are different ethnically than they were in this period of time. And that, of course, came through wars and rumors of wars over the centuries. But in this period of time, this was just the ancient Greco-Roman world. And Turkey was the Roman province of Asia. So this was a part of the Roman Empire. And in the Roman Empire here in Asia, you see these seven cities, which are chosen from, from the other cities there, in which there were churches in many of the Asian cities. But God chooses seven. He chooses seven of these cities to reveal a particular letter to, and in, in essence writes the whole of the book of Revelation to these seven churches. Now, I believe there's a symbolic interpretation of that, but I don't believe I'm going to have time to get into that at length today. Uh, but I just wanted you to see where these churches were, where these cities were in the ancient world, and you can see that on the map. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. This comes from Kaufman's commentary. He says, it is evidently John's preference for the number seven that lies behind this book's being directed to only seven congregations, because the New Testament names others in the same province, namely Troas, Colossae, and Hierapolis. Among the Hebrews, this was a sacred number, often used to symbolize the whole or the completeness of something. Thus, the interpretation of these seven standing for all of the congregations of Christ throughout the world would appear to be correct. And I agree with Kaufman on that. The evidence of this universal destination of the book is found in the repeated injunction, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Ultimately more even than the seven. But the seven are those that are specifically addressed. In the symbolic interpretation of seven, we find the Lord speaking to the whole of the church. And so I want to stop there because if I keep going, we're going to get too much developed we're going to end up at 45 minutes tonight, which wouldn't bother me, but it might bother some of y'all. So we'll go ahead, and I just want to summarize a little something from that. You see all this great stuff I'd prepared for tonight. I never know how much I'm going to get to. All right, but listen to this, all right? When God wrote the letter through Jesus, through the angel, through John the apostle, to the church at Ephesus, let's just say, he was speaking to realities in that particular church in the late first century and, and in the immediate years that followed that. What he says about the church at, at Ephesus there with the warnings that he gave as well as the commendations spoke specifically to that church. But you know what? Brother David and I have had several conversations about Laverne in the past, about Laverne having gone through an Ephesus season, a revelation to Ephesus season, to where the predominant culture and characteristics of the church very much laid alongside that. This church, uh, for a period of time, was a church that did really, really, really well at exposing false teachers, at highlighting doctrinal truth, and absolutely exposing and even shaming false teachers. And we'll get into the letter to Ephesus in the next couple of weeks, and you'll see the details there, which I'll spare you tonight. But we did that for a season to maybe the neglect of love, maybe the approach to rebuking false teachers and exposing false prophets and teaching the truth had more to do with the desire to win and be right than it had to do with the desire to save souls. And so Jesus says to the church at Ephesus, I'm proud of you for the true teaching that you're doing. He said, I'm proud of you for testing those that claim to be apostles and are not 
and finding them false and exposing them. He says, I'm proud of you for that. But you shouldn't have left behind the love you had at first. He says, restore it. Restore it. Or no matter how well you know the truth, I will remove your candlestick. In other words, I will cease to regard you as my church. And you will no longer be my witness to the world. That is Jesus' warning. Now, has Laverne Church of Christ ever been situated in the ancient city of Ephesus? No. Does the message apply universally to any church that fits that description? Yes. And that's where we find the key to interpreting this great book of prophecy and applying it to our world today. Lord willing, in the coming weeks, we'll say more and more about that. We're out of time for this evening. So this evening, if you're here and you have not yet named Jesus as Lord and confessed your faith and put him on in baptism, the opportunity is here for you to do that. The baptistry's here. The water is ready and warm. You can put on Jesus and have your sins be washed away tonight and join him in the kingdom and become a part of his army in this world, trying to make this world a better place and save as many souls as we can in the process. This evening, if you are a baptized believer that needs our prayers for whatever reason, either because you just need some strength or encouragement or help, or because you feel like you've abandoned the Lord and need to be restored and do His good graces, we're ready to assist you. Come, as together we stand and sing. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. If you have any questions, please email them to us at office at lavernecoc.org. Once again, we thank you for listening, and we hope you have a blessed day.